It might be. I think it, it might be an impossibility now. I think it might be different in a couple generations once the internet has truly matured. Hmm. In the sense that, like, we we are not familiar with the precedent of just letting someone fizzle out on the internet. Right. Even if you hate what that person, what someone's saying, you're gonna still quote retweet. You're gonna right. still add to their impressions, blah blah blah. And that's like we all do it, right? And I, it is our immediate tendency to do that. Yeah, and I, I mean, think I should I should plug my Twitter page as a quote tweet <laughs> uh, for Greg Kelly, the anchor for Newsmax. Uh, I'm just a quote tweet factory for, their... which I think is like funny as fuck, but it's like. Yeah, I mean, once once people are more educated going in about how to move about the internet, then maybe. Yeah, or we will be completely subservient to the tech companies mm -hmm. who control us. Mm-hmm. And also control the internet. Mm -hmm. I don't know, man. It's exhausting. It's exhausting, dude. <laughs> <sighs> All right, let's hit go to the show. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Hegelian Friendship Simulator, the only podcast on the internet where we make, try to make sense, try being the operative word, try to make sense of the world one Wikipedia article at a time. I am joined today, as always, by my very confused but really trying hard co-host, John Miklas. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, that is true. I'm really, I'm really trying my best. Um... I am joined, as always, by the ever so sure and ever yeah. so confident to a fault, uh, Alex Virgil. How you doing today, Virg? I'm doing pretty, pretty all right, man. I'm doing pretty all right. I was that's actually good, man. Happy. I was actually happy that the Gina Carano thing seemed to be the only all-encompassing annoying twitter piece of news today yeah i would agree with you know that I, mean? I um i'm actually i hate to frame it this way <laughs> but i am pretty bored of twitter now that donald trump is no longer on it i have to be honest <laughs> yeah it's boring it's not... BuzzFe buzzfeed is back on trending because yeah you know because it's shits whatever yeah man hopefully we go yeah. full back to like weird twitter days you know where it's like it's just like weird alt comedy and yeah that would be ideal i'd be okay with that i um honestly yeah it, it's not good when i am it's like normie liberal twitter is now the most annoying part of my day 
It's yeah. like I don't I just don't I don't need that. I don't need that energy in my life. I don't That's need good... um Yas King President Joe Biden uh Twitter <laughs> energy in my life. Yeah. Um, I was like are we maturing out of things every week? I feel like every week honestly, we're just maturing out of the week before. All right. Any old news? No, I don't have any I don't have any old business. You got any old business for me, Verge? <laughs> Um, thanks for answering. I do have old business, very old business. The Cajuns, the French population, ethnically French population in uh, the Deep South, yep. Louisiana-ish, um, are in fact descendants of Acadians um, from the jumping, if you remember, the jumping Frenchman of Maine. Episode one. Yes, they are related. They, yeah. uh, during the French and Indian War, British colonial officers suspected that Acadians were aligned with France after finding some Acadians fighting alongside French troops at Fort Beausejour. Um, the most Ooh. Acadians remained neutral during the war. The British, together with New England legislators and militia, carried out the Great Expulsion, or in France, Le Grand Dérangement of the Acadians between 1755 and 1764 they forcefully deported approximately 11,500 Acadians from the maritime region um and uh a lot of them were some Acadians were deported to England some to the Caribbean and some to France after being expelled to France many Acadians were eventually recruited by the Spanish government to migrate to Louisiana present-day louisiana their descendants gradually developed what became known as cajun culture mm -hmm. so uh 10 plus episodes i was right when i was like oh maybe acadians are the cajuns 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 i think and, uh, uh yeah. i think the answer is yes without question without question the coolest um colonial white culture in the Americas is mm -hmm. the like mm -hmm. French American diaspora. Um, mm -hmm. I love Cajun culture. It's like so weird and, yeah. and goofy, but also like very, very deeply felt and, and beautiful. Like the music is great. The food is great. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. There's a media wreck that I have. Um, that I've made Virgil Ooh. listen to many times now. Uh, it is a, a, an artist from oh, yeah. the French country of, I think it's like New Brunswick or Nova Scotia. Uh, his name is Petit Bellevue. Yeah, it's up there. And he has, he has a song called Income Tax that is in like this like very weird spanglishy like french canadian uh canadian english accent that rocks it rocks so hard uh we're gonna have to listen to it pretty soon uh just it's the best though yeah. uh so the entire diaspora i think is great but it is cool that the mainers so. the french mainers are the same as the french louisiana mm -hmm. very yeah. cool very cool. That's Good my stuff. old piece of news. Um, I've been uh, killing it the last couple episodes with the old business. 
you've been, <laughs> yeah, you've been all about the old, the old business. Um, old business. Th- this isn't exactly old business, but I did want to plug uh, that um, Adam Curtis has a new documentary. Uh, oh, yes. Both, both of us recently watched Hypernormalization. Uh, it's a yep. big time media wreck. One of the best documentaries I've yep. ever seen. Um, Mm-hmm. makes you question the history of everything really um but yeah. particularly the of like the last 50 years and he just released a new six-part series uh i'm looking it up i can't remember what it's called i have not BBC watched docs, it yet baby bbc docs are where it's at bbc documentaries my subject today was uh inspired by a bbc doc i watched nice uh yeah it's called can't get you out of my head it's a six-part series and i intend to watch very soon i'm sure virgil will too so if you're listening out there and i think i will uh you 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 want to be a part of our conversations which i'm sure will bleed onto the show i would highly recommend uh starting it soon too maybe we'll try and the episode titles yeah the episode titles are amazing. Um, Read them. The last episode is Are We Pigeon or Are We Dancer? Like the yep. killer song. Are We Human or Are We Dancer? Um, money changes everything. Shooting and fucking are the same thing. Yep. Bloodshed on Wolf Mountain. The Lordly Ones. And my favorite one. I can't wait to get to this episode. But what if the people are stupid? <laughs> Because oh, I think I that is wait. kind of that is the question we I've been asking uh, here and there is what if we're all just too stupid for this? Yep. Oh my God! It's he dropped seven hours of footage. I cannot wait for this. I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this. Um, um, Verge, I hear you might have an ethnic enclave for me. Oh yeah, and get that Chinesey music out. Boom. <laughs> And did I hear correctly that your ethnic enclave might also have something to do with your topic for the week? It will be the smoothest segue of all time. Ah, I can't wait. So get ready for the ethnic enclave of the week. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Nicholas, are you familiar with China? (laughs) Have you heard of China? I have heard of it, but I am actually not very familiar with it. (laughs) Well, today we are talking about a specific ethnic enclave in a specific city in China. We are going to talk about the Kaifeng Jews. Wow. Already intriguing, right? I'm very intrigued, yeah. The Kaifeng Jews... Are, a members, are members of a small Jewish community in Kaifeng in the Henan province of China, whose members had largely assimilated into Chinese society while preserving some Jewish traditions and customs. Their origin and time of arrival in Kaifeng are a matter of debate among experts. Wow. So when what what would your ballpark estimate be for when these when these uh, Kaifeng Jews came? So where is Kaifeng? Like, where in China? That's a great question. Kaifeng is one of the eight ancient capitals of China. Oh, wow. 
Yes, and Kaifeng itself is actually located right along the Yellow River, kind of right in the middle. Oh. So, so like, uh, latitudinally, pretty much the same as, like, South Korea, like Busan, the southern, southern yeah. part of South Korea, I guess. Um, so it's, like, right kind of in the middle. So, so but not, like, Russian border. It's, no, it's, no, no, no. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because I was thinking, I was thinking in my head because I know that there is right. like, like there's like the Jewish oblast in in Russia. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking like, oh, maybe the community formed like kind of in relation to that. But no, no, no. So would you would you classify this as like Silk Road? Yes. Kind of like okay. So that I would is, say yeah. I would say that the Jews came to Kaifeng in the 11th century that is pretty that's pretty good most scholars believe that a jewish community has existed in kaifeng since the northern song dynasty 960 to 1127 though some scholars date their arrival to the tang dynasty 618 to 907 or earlier wow Kaifeng, which was then the capital of the Northern Song Dynasty, which is pretty much what my topic is going to be, was a cosmopolitan city on a branch of the Silk Road. Nice. It is surmised that a small community of Mizrahi Jews who were most likely from Persia or yeah. India um, or Jewish refugees who probably fled the Crusades arrived by a land or a sea route, settled in the city, and built a synagogue in 1163. Um, Interesting. Yes. Uh, Fragmentary evidence, which dates to the 11th century, indicates that at the time, uh, the Kaifeng Jewish community was primarily of Persian Jewish origin, but some members of it may have come from different backgrounds. Some, it is thought that some came from what is now Iraq. uh, And some, many of the known Hebrew names of the Kaifeng Jews were only found among Persian and Babylonian Jews. Interesting. Yeah. And it's very interesting because they were very much allowed to be a part of the community. There wasn't really persecution for most of their time there to the point where there is still like a part of Kaifeng that is like, oh, this is the street. This is like the Jewish street. Oh, funny. And um, I watched watched this great YouTube video where it's... um, a handful of Chinese Jews going to Israel for the first time. Hmm. And they're just like straight up Chinese people who mostly learned about their heritage, Jewish heritage as like a secondary culture thing, as opposed to having grown up in it, which is interesting and are trying to get back to their roots. So then you see these interviews about like, you know, why, why have you decided to, you know, and then it's like heavy Chinese accent. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm home. <laughs> I'm home. You know, it's <laughs> like, fuck yeah. Um, do you think, do you think that people like have a, um, do you think that there is like serendipity to like, like a location? Like, do you think that if mm. I went to my, ancestral hometown in ireland or slovakia mm-hmm. like there would be a, a like a like a feeling 
I do you, do you believe in that or do you think that that I is like, believe like in this perception see I couldn't answer that question but yeah. I know what you're talking about because every time I watch any any Mongolian stuff I'm just kind of like oh and I don't get that from like any Korean Chinese like all that interesting and I see Mongolian shit and I go oh their face shape looks a little bit more like my family's face shape than you know, like I weirdly had yeah. really good eyes growing up and I was like, hmm, I wonder if that's like because my ancestors uh, had to see far. Falcons. <laughs> you know? yeah, 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 exactly. You know, it's because y- your ancestors were falconers. Yeah. I so, have uh, the ability to drink really well. So <laughs> I wonder if that's ancestral. Yeah. Well, the thing with like European ancestry, I think, is like anytime an American comes over and says like, I'm one of you, they'll be like, American, but also, yeah, you're one of us. My my fucking favorite thing is the fact that there have been like six, six million people have lived on the island of Ireland for Mm -hmm. going on about 200 years. Mm-hmm. The, the the population of the island hasn't grown in the last 200 years and there are legitimately like a hundred million americans that claim irish ancestry mm-hmm. it's the best thing it's like you know at a certain point like i don't know i i'm sure if you're irish you're like well those fucking yankees like you know like <laughs> yeah all say that they're irish but you know what just go with it like it America is the only example of Irish excellence, like in the history of the world. So that's so true. That's so funny. <laughs> Back to Kaifeng Jews. Kaifeng Jews. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's not too much else to say, really. Um, it is interesting though okay. that during the Ming Dynasty, 1368 to 1644, a Ming emperor conferred eight surnames upon the Jews, by which they are identifiable today. I, Xi, Gao. Gan, Jin, Li, Zhang, and Zhao. Um, which is interesting because I have a good friend from college whose last name is Zhao. And uh, I would be curious to be like, has yeah, there I, ever been any talk in your family about being Jewish? I was going to say, I wonder if those are like Jewish surnames mm-hmm. in China or if they are Chinese surnames that were like picked as the eight jewish like you know right like you know what i mean like it strikes me that all of those are larger names right. that encompass much larger groups of people mm-hmm. but that's interesting. yeah that's super that is I'm, I'm i am curious yeah because i wonder if there was any um relation to like hebrew letters or something too right oh yeah interesting you know like i have no idea um oh what's interesting though is by the beginning of the 20th century one of these Kaifeng clans, the Zhang, had largely converted to Islam, which is interesting. Um, here's a little story that sounds particularly Jewish. A catastrophic flood in 1642 destroyed the synagogue, and considerable efforts were made to save the scriptures. One man of the Gao clan, Gao Zhuan, dove repeatedly into the flooded synagogue to rescue what he could and afterward all seven clans helped restore and rewrite the 13 scrolls hmm. which i imagine are you know versions of like the tanakh and torah but in chinese yeah um so yeah so like that's kind of a cool little thing that i found out 
is that this is the largest Chinese um, Jewish uh, community, and they've been there for a thousand, over a thousand years. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. I feel, and then this is reductive, like mm. it not even might be reductive. It is reductive. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like particularly American of me to say, but because of China's recent history, like the, you mm -hmm. know, like the, the, the communist era, mm -hmm. you really, the, I, I think you like the West myself have mm -hmm. a hard time, like identifying the fact that like a billion people, almost 2 billion people live in this country and they mm -hmm. have like a just infinitely rich history with right. tons of variances this is an enormous place that we like on a map is like just painted red without any sort of like kind of interest in the the kind of mm -hmm. the the cracks and the like the the details of it all it's like oh communist china you know it's like oh it's just china it's just one place and it's like no there are literally thousands of ethnic groups hundreds of thousands of histories so many details that are probably much more i think the actually the problem is that it is too much detail for the west mm -hmm. whereas like i don't know some other cultures are maybe a little bit more like japan for example right japan is largely like one ethnic group yeah and it has a very specific culture uh -huh. And it's not easy to understand, or, or maybe not easy to master, but it is easy to get your head around it. Whereas right. China and, and India, too, I think I'd throw this in there, are like so rich, so mm -hmm. diverse, that we just like can't even fathom it. It's too far out of our, our headspace. I love that you said that, because the reason I picked today's topic was exactly that, for that cool. exact reason. Yeah, I love um, that. You know, there has been uh, an, a, another heightening this week of, you know, hate crimes against Asian Americans. Yeah. And uh, simultaneously, I I am someone who definitely um, for a long time in my life saw China as pretty much what we see in the 20th century. Um, and because I'm reading the book Three Body Problem, which made me think about this. Is it great? It's it's great. I'm a little past halfway, and um, yeah, it's made me think a lot about my understanding of fucking linear history. And you make a good point about Japan, too, because like Japan, until the 20th century, didn't have really any cultural exports, right? So like anything you see coming out of Japan is very distinctly of that one culture, and even if it has influenced the rest of the world you can still trace it back to this one linear culture while China doesn't feel linear in its progression. Mm -mm. Um, yeah. And, and I, I mean, we've, we've talked about this on the show, like linking China with, or not China, Japan with France. And they mm -hmm. do have similar where it's like, there is a, a cultural uh, belief in mastery of stuff, mm -hmm. which I think in turn does simplify. It means that, Right. Almost no one is capable of mastering it, but mm -hmm. like the culture itself is based on these like revered, specific, simple things. Mm -hmm. um, 
Whereas, yeah, I mean the 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 just like the the cultural variances and diversity of a place like China, it it's it is infinite. It is, for an for a Westerner or an American, it is an abyss that you cannot really. You don't even know where to start. You know, it's like trying to learn about a culture on quicksand. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the reason I looked started kind of like vaguely looking into. Chinese history is because I was reading all this stuff and realizing like oh there was a lot of historical stuff that I was just reading through in Chinese because I had no context and so I was just kind of reading it as these things that are mentioned in the book yeah and then because it has a lot to do with the relationship of science and history there's a moment where a lot of the conversation switches to Europe so then you start getting like Copernicus and you start getting these names and I'll suddenly like oh wait this is what he was doing about earlier science history in China that I just didn't even know was going on because I, you know, because right. I have no idea who these people are. I didn't know this was happening. So anyway, my subject for the day, my topic for the day is the city of Kaifeng, um, specifically during the Song Dynasty, cool. which, like I mentioned before, was about 960, 1279. So the Song Dynasty, uh, if you are unfamiliar with how Chinese history is generally demarcated, it's through different dynasties. So it's just different big families kind of taking over large swaths of the land. Um, and so as much as there is a mandate from heaven, there were always different families that... Um, would t take over. So this is the during the Song Dynasty. It was right after a period of many warring states it's like 60 different you know tribes were all there was no centralized um government china as a concept which had expanded all the way um west into like what are now the stands um had receded mm. back towards the coast um which is right when these two brothers hmm and what's interesting is the beginning, the story of the beginning of the Song Dynasty kind of has like these interesting parallels to Romulus and Remus. Oh, interesting. You know, in like weird cool. little ways. But I'm not yeah. going to get too too much into that. What I want to talk about is um, the Renaissance that was Song Dynasty Kaifeng. Um, Kaifeng was the capital of the uh, of the Song Dynasty, uh, the Northern Song Dynasty, which we'll get to probably, hopefully, maybe not. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but basically, it became the capital, and it was, like, known for being a city of firsts in the sense that it was the first city that seemed to operate a lot like many urban areas now. Um, so it was, like, the first Chinese city that didn't have a curfew, for example. Oh. So it used to be that um, in Chinese cities, once there, you know, there'd be a gong at a certain time, or bell or something and everyone had to kind of be in their wards after that but this is the first urban center urban city where uh there that didn't exist so this is like the the ex like explosion of culture food culture art explosion of literacy um mm. all these like scientific and uh technological advancements so this uh kaifeng is um credited where with being the first place where gunpowder was used. Hmm. Um, it was also, 
there was a huge, you know, astronomical clock tower that was built. Uh, the the printing press. I'm honestly kind of stuck on the 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 curfew thing. I find <laughs> right. I I just find it kind of crazy. I mean, isn't it like it? So basically, like culturally, it was so regimented that like mm-hmm. it was just it was just dignified. Like it was. Like yeah. So one of the that... things I I think this can be attributed to how uh, unanimously Confucian uh, ideals sure. were like were like uh, um, observed on like a large scale. Um, this seems to be the first kind of city where there's a certain amount of individual liberalism. It's like the it's like the origin of cosmopolitanism, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, oh, one of the big cool. things is like uh, you know feminism, for example. Hmm. Um, women, even during like in the Confucian texts, women are portrayed in a subservient way. Um, and and that didn't completely go away necessarily. This wasn't like you know a utopia for women necessarily, but it was like pretty far advanced compared to everywhere else in the you know a thousand years ago. Where one of the most famous uh, poets was a woman who was not just posthumously respected, you know, in looking back, but like during her life was a very like revered poet. Um, and she would talk about like different things going on in the city um, and things like that. Uh, the literacy thing was a big one. Uh, the fact that they actually came up with like the type, uh, movable type printing press about 500 years, three, four, 400 years before it was introduced in Europe. And the the my favorite part about the printing press is that it didn't even catch on. They didn't like it. They That's... came up with the technology and then hundreds of years before it revolutionized Western civilization, they were like, this isn't good enough. Honestly, dude, I always knew Gutenberg was a fucking fraud, man. Gutenberg I always is a hack, knew it. bro. It's such a hack. Such a hack. Yeah, Thanks a lot. I... Thanks for nothing. Yeah, Project Gutenberg? No, it should be Project Kai Fang, bro. Truly. Yeah. Um and so there's a so the first thing I saw about it was the BBC documentary about it. <laughs> and so oh, interesting. Particular uh plugging of it today um but what's cool is one of the things they were talking on the documentary is that like this isn't an ancient culture this is a city that was at one point the uh, capital and just isn't anymore but still has been a city for a thousand plus years so there are things like cookbooks from like the renaissance of kaifeng's culinary you know yeah like whatever there's cookbooks that have just existed for a thousand years that are just going through like as any other book like different editions and stuff so like they're just like normal cookbooks that are like the 500th edition of this like thousand plus year old cookbook that's just been continuously used you know yeah and like that's the sense of like deep 
human deep time that we forget about in the West so regularly that I wanted to illuminate. Um, yeah, well, we think of, I think we think of history almost like um, like a stock market, the stock market mm-hmm. lines, you know, where yeah. it like it's like it, it always goes up, you know, like t- like the pr- progress is linear. Sometimes mm-hmm. it goes down. Oop, World War Two. That was a bit of an oopsie, you know, but but and then sometimes it goes up a lot. The Industrial Revolution. Um, mm-hmm. But we don't we don't we don't have a sense of history the way that like a place that has been inhabited for this long mm-hmm. and has been, you know, has just been just been cooking. I mean, just been vibing. These people have been vibing in, in Kaifeng for for yeah. many, many centuries. That's for very cool. Many centuries. Yeah, because so I always think about it in terms of like people in the US always forget that two hundred years is really not a long time. Think right. about Europe. And then I'm like, Europe I think one thousand years at most. Thirteen hundreds right. maybe when we're starting to see like you know uh ripples that we could kind of like reconcile in our head. Um but uh fucking like okay when uh champagne champagne was created uh the oldest recorded sparkling wine 1531 mm-hmm. and there is a restaurant in kaifeng called mayu ching's bucket chicken house amazing located in kaifeng awesome. established 1153 it's a it's just a chicken house that still exists in Kaifeng. Uh considered possibly the oldest restaurant to still exist. What um did, did the DB, BBC doc So you watched the BBC documentary specifically about the city of Kaifeng? Specifically about the city of Kaifeng um when it was the capital during the Song Dynasty. Yeah. Cuz I wonder what the average Chinese person living today thinks of Kaifeng. Like, I wonder if it has like a, like a perception of like, um, like this, like place of like deep history or, you know, like, I wonder if this is when I wonder if that doesn't differ for them for any city. Right. Like, like Japan's a good example of cities that have uh, survived for, you know, comparable amounts of time. But, like, it's different because we think of, like, Kyoto as old. Right. Tokyo is new. And we think of Tokyo as new. And yeah. part of that is because most of the city was built after the 40s. But, like, I wonder, yeah. Was Tokyo not like, the biggest city in Japan during, like, is that a new revelation? or is No, that... it, was to, it was the capital. Um, already, yeah. Yeah, already for. But it was also bombed to shit, right? Yeah, it was bummed to shit, I mean. Um, that's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is very difficult. The mm-hmm. the east-west cultural divide mm-hmm. um, is something, honestly, 
if I'm if I'm thinking about it, is honestly something to be celebrated in many. And I think that that is mm-hmm. like not the perspective that people take. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. people take the perspective of like it being this like these like forces, or mm-hmm. they don't even pay it any mind. But like right. the the deep differences in these mm-hmm. two kind of spheres, and that people can live their entire life on Earth not even having to contemplate it because mm-hmm. they are so inside the gravity of one of those spheres is actually something really, really wonderful in a way, you know, mm-hmm. like it it goes against maybe some of the more malevolent parts of globalism, right? you know, like we have different histories, like, we are our, our, our um, all of our kind of ancestries tug at our tug. Yeah. They create magic in different places, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of the thing that is cool about the past and the present is that we are diff- all different. You know, like mm-hmm. that's to be celebrated. It's not to be to be kind of like washed away or overcome. It's just like it it exists. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, and thank you for getting to like the soul of what this topic is really. Um, because I do think, especially in the U.S., the uh, the concrete history of Asia is constantly just thrown aside for vague, ambiguous spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. And and to see that that doesn't even understand the the variances of the spirituality that they're talking about. It is right. It is exactly. Eastern religion at large. Like it doesn't even understand the differences between Confucianism, Shinto, Buddhism, Hinduism. Like exactly, we wash over those entirely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think maybe that's what that's what it is is to kind of like fill in some of the. Uh, you know, it's like it's like when you're playing any kind of like Age of Empires type game where like there's a shroud over the places you haven't explored and I just kinda wanna illuminate yeah. the complexities of like some of these places that like we never think about. Like Kaifeng is a city that I literally I didn't know the name of the city Kaifeng until yesterday. Yeah. Never heard of it before. How many yeah. people live there currently? Um, so currently it has about five million. <laughs> which is interesting that's so cool that's so which ridiculous is, yeah it's just a podunk town in china um <laughs> five million uh which is interesting because back in uh the song dynasty it was about three million no fucking way yeah so it actually is small kind of like in the sense that it hasn't proportionally grown the way we well, would imagine. No, yeah, yeah, totally. Three yeah. million people during that time, During though, then, yeah. Had insane. to be one of the largest cities in the world. It was. It was the largest city uh, <laughs> in the world. <laughs> I mean, at that point, I don't... I'll bet that there wasn't a European city that had more than 100,000 people living in it. Because yeah. that was, like, true... I mean, that was a dark era. The Song Dynasty was happening during a dark era for European history. Very, very... Um. Okay, this this page says six to seven hundred thousand, which doesn't jive with the BBC. What of the, uh, uh, living there? A population, oh, yeah, a population. When when? Well, I mean, hard to say. Sure, I would sure, say yeah. 
metro area, like city center versus like exactly. That's what I mean. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like L.A. You know, whether I live in L.A. depends on who you ask. Yeah. (laughs) For example, L.A. City Um, four million, L.A. Metro fifteen million. Exactly. Um. So it was big city. It's I I would encourage you to watch parts of the documentary because the city life really seems super cool. And there's this wonderful, like 20, 20 page mural scroll, um, that depicts like city life, but it's done in like a sprawling, you know, it's as if it were like a tourist map of this whole city, um, with complete with like people in it. It names like Dr. Yang's, clinic is right next to like the fucking Bauhaus that is Weird. you know better that that is more popular than the one that's two blocks down you know kind of shit where it's like oh yeah like these people were living the modern city life over a thousand years ago when yeah you know people were like fucking eating rats in Europe dude yeah. <laughs> which is canon now people were fucking eating rats in Europe yeah, I mean, I don't know if they were eating rats, but they were certainly a little too close to rats. They were um, too close to rats, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is like this is like peak bubonic plague era. Mm-hmm. Um, man, that is so cool. I mean, it is... I don't know. I, I think that this kind of stuff, like learning about that stuff, like always puts in perspective the fact that, like, history is made up of people living their life and they Mm -hmm. you know like they didn't have like access to the knowledge that we have or the Mm -hmm. the the kind of um prescience of what the past could teach them um Mm -hmm. but they still had the exact same like feelings you know and like probably had the exact same questions they just didn't know how to interpret them uh as you know much as we can now yeah it's it's or something like like a story like kai feng mm-hmm. m- makes you think no maybe like the people of kai feng today are doing and interpreting things the exact same way that they have been for 1200 years you know yeah like that that is a very western thought to think all right well we're more equipped to answer the questions of life uh, right. than we were in the past but like this is a, a city that has continuously been operated pretty functionally for mm-hmm. 12 centuries if not more mm-hmm. and people live in pretty good lives even a thousand years ago hell yeah um is there anything else about about the Northern Song uh, Dynasty or Kaifeng just, that you want to talk about first? Just some quick, like, cool things again to think about that was happening in the city over a thousand years ago. The first discernment of I true, love it. Yeah, let's hear it. true north using a compass. So, like, the first time hmm. gravitational north was, like, conceptually discovered. Um, yeah. Also, the idea of long-term climate shifts was really first established in the city during time like like the uh, the the idea that the world is not constant um interesting in like a deep time in a deep time kind of way yeah 
um, which has a lot of lot to do with the book I'm reading right now. So it's it's very cool. Uh, the first it was the first the Song government was the first in world history to use banknotes or true paper money nationally, and huh. the first Chinese government to establish a permanent standing navy. First Chinese government, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of that like little little things where you're like, oh. These things are obvious things that I knew someone discovered, but I thought someone discovered that 500 years ago in Europe. Right. Nope. Nope. Very cool. I love yeah. that. This is so cool. I, I mean, this is immediately on the, the World Tour live episode yeah. list, right? Yeah. Kai Fang is, I, is definitely on it. I want to go. I want to. I want to see the Jewish neighborhood in Kai Fang for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and then my last piece that I want to just re-bring up that I think is the most fun piece, again, is the fact that they invented the movable type printing press and then said, nah. <laughs> no, this actually sucks. Don't need it. Too much work. Don't need it. Oh, my God. I love it. Was it was literally because it's too much work because of the, the, the thousands of characters. <laughs> They're like, well, our language is too evolved for this stupid piece of shit technology. Yeah. And I mean, if I'm like, if I'm imagining parts of like ancient or not ancient, but like um, antiquitous Chinese culture, I feel like a a well-developed bureaucracy is like a huge part of it. Right. That's so they, they got guys. Yeah. They got guys that just know how to write all like they just write them out because that's like yep. what they do. And they and they very much that was part of the education literacy thing too was to make sure there were enough guys to do that shit. Interesting. So, I love it. Yeah. The, the, so that's you know, Kai the, Feng. The smart guys win again. The nerds win. Yep. yep. I love Kai it. Feng I love Kai Feng. I'm a big fan. Yep. Oh, um, and then I guess I should add that uh, at one point they were um, uh, invaded from the north. Uh, initially by other um, more northern Chinese um, clans or dynasties yeah and then they so they had to move south of the uh, Yangtze River um, which is credited to being the reason why so much of modern Chinese civilization is centered more towards the south eastern part of China than the north so yeah uh, that's just that and then, and then the yeah. credits rolled, and then I said, oh, I'm going to go to sleep instead of watching the next episode, even though I want to. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah. There you go. What happens? My topic is nuisance wildlife management. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. Um, Tell me what right, animals so, I can kill. Yeah, so according to Wikipedia, nuisance wildlife management is... Um, the term given to the process of selective removal of problem individuals or populations, specific species of wildlife. Other terms for the field include wildlife damage management, wildlife control, and animal damage control, to name a few. Some species of wildlife may become habituated to man's presence, causing property damage or risking transfer of disease to humans or pets. Many wildlife species coexist with humans very successfully, such as commensal rodents. <laughs> uh, which have become more or less dependent on humans. So I came upon this. We there, there are. This is an umbrella of topics mm-hmm. that all potentially deserve their own show. 
But in order to be, you know, one step ahead of the the pack and not mm-hmm. do something I didn't I really didn't want to just do a weird topic that mm-hmm. um you could you know just go to a number of podcasts and listen like I wanted right. to kind of tie some stuff together I wanted to talk about the overarching umbrella and then talk through our way of talking about stuff a couple cool. of fun or important examples I love um, it. So I do have a couple of things, though, about this page, um, because this is really just a jumping off point. Right. But uh, in the, for the, you know, in the, in the spirit of talking about Wikipedia as a format, um, I found this particular article pretty goofy. Okay. And... And I was starting to think about like why. Um, so first of all, let me let me go to like the specific parts of it that I found kind of goofy. Um, so I read you the the opening like the opening paragraph, and then the next section is characteristics of nuisance species, which is my favorite part of the entire article. Uh, it's four paragraphs long. The first paragraph is about how typically species are most likely to be considered a nuisance. Uh, by humans um, if they are adaptable to a fragmented habitat. Um, (laughs) And animals such as geese love ponds with low sloping banks. Hmm. And then it says, humans love this sort of landscaping too. So it is not surprising that Canada geese have thrived, not to mention the (laughs) decline of hunting. So I thought it was like... There is like a person to person close and there to is it. there it makes sense if you really think about like what they're trying to say here. Mm-hmm. but if you are not a wildlife nuisance manager, like mm-hmm. if you're not in pest control, I feel like they're jumping an extra step um, yeah. because I also could see, it being surprising that geese thriving in a place where humans also thrive. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like they it I love the the language of it saying humans love this sort of landscaping too. So it's not surprising that Canada geese have thrived. You know what I mean? Like it's like <laughs> jumping to a conclusion past what like an encyclopedia article really should be doing. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then this next paragraph is a beauty. It says Second, these animals are not tied to eating a specific type of food. For example, lynx do not thrive in human-impacted environments because they rely so heavily on snowshoe hares. In contrast, raccoons have been very successful in urban landscapes because they can live in attics, chimneys, and even sewers and can sustain themselves with food gained from trash cans and discarded litter. Why are links being brought up in this article at all? That's my question. This is, this <laughs> like, is like, dude, this sounds like a high, like a high school class assignment was to write a wiki page, right? Well, and yeah, because it's like, do we really need the example of the links to understand that the raccoon like? Animals are not tied to eating a specific type of food. Why can't you just go straight into raccoons? It's just not that hard of a concept to understand that raccoons like eat trash and that they could be a 
pest because of that, you know? Like, based on my understanding of Wikipedia, that piece of the lynx should be a photo of a lynx in the snow, and the caption should just be like, not a nuisance species because <laughs> they feed on horseshoe hairs. It's snowshoe hairs. It's just so weird. Um, and then the last thing is that uh, I love. It says finally, successful animi- animals and humanized landscapes are often perceived as <laughs> cute in quotation marks. <laughs> so. <laughs> At least until they... Wait, hold on, hold on. The second half of that sentence is, like, even more subjective. At least until they become so numerous that their preferential status becomes diminished. Right, As if, yeah, like, humans just... have decided that, like, too many, not cute anymore. Yeah, this is this is um, encyclopedic, encyclopedic fact that uh, nuisance species are cute until they yeah. aren't anymore. So... I actually think this gives a great preamble to mm. to this topic and like the examples in history because mm-hmm. it is this is not the um the Wikipedia article on nuclear fission. This is a right, right, right. this is a very human and and imperfect like this is i don't know like this is not a science like per se this is it is but this was written by someone who is the experts in this world are not necessarily the experts in like their scientific um like uh uh division or their you know their 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 Ology. Uh, mm-hmm. This is this is the at best. This was written by like someone who is a scientist in pest control. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So it's got like a like it. it I think it in in and of itself has a very human lens, like a very like right. imperfect lens. Um, and the great the best examples of nuisance wildlife manage management are catastrophic failures across the board. Um, (laughs) So we will go to the first one, which is the Emu War. Um, Love it. So the Emu War, uh, basically sometimes known as the Great Emu War, was a nuisance wildlife management military operation undertaken in Australia over the later part of 1932 to address public concern over the number of emus said to be running, running a monk in the Campione district of Western Australia. This um, seems like the kind of thing that I'm laughing at, but then there's like an Australian guy who's like, this shit's not funny, mate. Like, well, it was a war, mate. I, I don't know how you can read this article or think <laughs> about this subject and not think... Man, like the Australians, they're lovely people, but the penal colony stuff, like (laughs) their gene pool is just not the greatest. (laughs) So basically what happened is after World War One, the Australian government Mm -hmm. um, gave a ton of land grants out to combat soldiers, like combat Mm -hmm. veterans from World War One. 
So you've mm-hmm. got these like disaffected, yeah, you know, p- potentially PTSD as fuck discharged veterans that have land on mm-hmm. essentially unfarmable territory in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. Like Western Australia is a fucking wasteland in yeah. many regards. And so they started to, you know, to f- plant wheat crops. Um, and the government said that they were going to, uh, to, you know, to provide subsidy assistance. They never did that. Um, and the wheat didn't do very well. Uh, but what did happen was all of these crops were a boon to the emu population of Western Australia that now had easy grazing ground and just a wonderful place to um, sustain their population. And um, they, so the, in addition to this, the, you know, European colonizers of Australia had for whatever reason brought rabbits to Australia, which are not Mm. native to Australia. Right. The emus would create gaps in the fences. And so not only were these farmers getting rocked by (laughs) emus eating their wheat, the rabbits would get into their farms. (laughs) (laughs) So it was finally decided that they had to go out with Tommy guns and kill all of the emus. And so there were... (laughs) There were full-on Australian army divisions that went to Western Australia with machine guns, and their whole goal um, was to kill um, all the entire emu population. In, to indiscriminately mow down the yes. emu population. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I, I, I apologize. I skipped over this. If you are unfamiliar with the emu listeners, it is a bird native to Australia um, yeah. that is right, only found in Australia, a flightless bird, six feet tall. So it is mm. like the size of a large man. Um, mm. Kind of looks like an ostrich. Uh, got like a big, mean face and like a huge body and walks yeah. on these big, tall, like it looks like a dinosaur. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It rocks. It's, it's they definitely rock. post post dinosaur. Um, so I think at this point I need to read some just because the um, it's yeah. so funny. Um, so on second November, the men traveled to Campione, where some fifty emus were sighted. As the birds were out of range of the guns, the local settlers attempted to herd the emus into an ambush. But a the small birds... company of emus. Can you describe them as a small company of emus? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the birds split into small groups and ran, so they were difficult to target. Two Nevertheless, platoons, while the first fusillade uh, from the machine guns was ineffective due to the range, a second round of gunfire was able to kill a number of birds. Later the same day... <laughs> Uh, a small flock, a small platoon was encountered, and perhaps a dozen birds <laughs> were killed. Um, the next uh, significant event was on November 4th. Meredith, who was, I think, one of the, the sergeants, um, established an ambush near a local dam, and more than a thousand <laughs> emus were spotted headed towards their position. This time, the gunners awaited until the birds were in close proximity before opening fire. The guns jammed after only 12 birds were killed, and the remainder <laughs> scattered before any more could be shot. Oh, no, birds. 
No more birds were sighted that day. <laughs> so um, many things I love about this is the it, imagery that is so easy to conjure up. Um, I love the I love that there the the dates the specific dates right is great. It was like oh the 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 battle of Emu Ridge on the November fourth. Who, who can forget? It's it's really. Um... I mean, if you if you think about, you know, like the um, the conflicts of literature, you know, mm-hmm. like such a perfect example of like man versus nature. Like you could mm-hmm. not you could not conjure up something more literally. And um, I think it is a great example. Like goes to show you, like the the impossibility that it is to assign simple solutions to complex problems, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and it just, I, I wrote in my notes, like, do we really have any doubts how this will end? You know what I mean? Like, it's just <laughs> like the, 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 the quaintness of it, especially in, in kind of comparison to, like what you were talking about with Kai Fang, like mm-hmm. it is quite beautiful and also absurd how man can oscillate between like these like true the true depth of brilliance mm-hmm. and the just most like buffoonish yeah. like silliness. The emu war is one of the most silly things. <laughs> the fact that they called it a war, the fact that there were all of these men with machine guns in Western Australia who and their couldn't... guns jammed. Yeah. Um so so basically despite the problems encountered with the cull, the farmers of the region um ended up so this, the, all this stuff happened in 1932 and then again in 1935. Okay. Or no, sorry. I guess it happened two different attempts in 1932. And they, they said that they killed like 2,000 emus. Mm. The, the farmers of the region asked again for military assistance in 1934, 1943, and 1948, only to be turned down by the government. <laughs> So it didn't work. I mean, of course it didn't work. And it, 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 it was a complete embarrassment for Australia. Um, that is, there's just like <laughs> so many like war tropes that I can't stop throwing into this, which is just like, I'm just picturing a chopper flying over Western Australia going, Farm, farmers of Perth, farmers of Perth. We have not forgotten you. We have not forgotten you. <laughs> yeah, they they're This one is this one is like silly and embarrassing, yeah. but it is yeah. uh I mean the imagery is so wonderful that mm-hmm. you like can you like it's hard to even take in like the I don't know the ethics of it because there mm-hmm. there are none. You know, like you just can't right. even really contemplate the consequences because mm-hmm. it's like that is kind of the interesting thing about Australia 
mm-hmm. is that it is like a pretty a place with like pretty low stakes. I mean the <laughs> yeah. the you know the set the the complete uh, uh, um, massacre of the Aboriginal population aside, like. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's like this is so whimsical the emu war it's just so silly, um, like it would happen in Australia exactly yeah it's like uh, you can't even you don't even do real things you know you yeah. fucking uh, and you can't even do goofy things well you know uh, yeah. so now let's go to uh, an example that is more pernicious. Okay, um, that's great because I was I was gonna say the one thing I do like about the Australian approach to it is that my understanding of historical pest control is always to just introduce the immediate predators into the ecosystem. So I didn't even cause more yeah, problems. Good call. I didn't even touch <laughs> on. I we're not gonna talk about that concept at all. Yeah. But that is a a hilariously constant, especially during the american or not uh, the what european colonial period yeah like there's so many examples of that you go to um the island of saint john in the caribbean Mm. which is in the u.s Mm. virgin islands and Mm. it is completely overrun with mongooses they are the squirrels of saint john mongooses because they kill snakes and so they killed all the snakes on the island mongooses are like straight up like the the descendants of colonialism like yeah. Hawaii has mongooses, you know, and it's like, well, I, I could tell you why, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's um, so funny. All right, let's go to your pernicious example. So, all right, so we are back in China, and now ah. we have fast forwarded all the way to the um, Great Leap Forward period of ah. um, post Chinese Revolution, uh, and the wonderful. And always a character, Mao Zedong. Um, I can already tell this is going to be way more pernicious than Australia's emo emu war. Yeah, it's actually it's pretty rough. And and it, <laughs> it, so the four pests campaign okay. was one of the the original acts of the Great Leap Forward. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually love the fact that you talked about Kaifeng um, mm-hmm. because. I think that it is important to understand the like weight of history yeah. that exists in China in order to understand the Chinese Revolution and mm-hmm. the kind of like counteraction to that. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't I would say, I mean, from my very ignorant Western mind, a place like Kaifeng is probably not the thing that is being like singled out more so the overarching pressure of confucian ideals Mm -hmm. on china but one of the things and i we've kind of hinted on or discussed it on you know different episodes of the pod is like imagining communist revolutions as wanting to completely and utter utterly restart history like cultural Mm -hmm. history and how i'm not here to make any judgment calls you know what i mean like i don't want to be i don't want to be 
like that fucking i don't want to be ben shapiro saying like look at the body count because right because you don't you can't really quantify the amount mm-hmm. of pressure mm-hmm. that gets built up that you want to extinguish unless you are uniquely a part of the culture right but all i can say is that like the more i read about like china in the 1950s and 60s mm-hmm. and like some of the wild stuff that mao zedong got away with because he it was like it's like the revolution happened and then he was like the great leader and they were like okay what do we do and so he's like <laughs> we're gonna get rid of sparrows mosquitoes rats and flies that's the first thing that's the problem <laughs> uh and mm. And so they did. Um, and so from 1958 to 1962, f- the four pests, uh, rats, flies, mosquitoes, and, and sparrows, were there was an attempt to eliminate them from China. Say that. Say the four pests again. Yeah, rats, flies, mosquitoes, and sparrows. Man, if they even put a dent in the sparrows, that's already pretty impressive. Rats, flies, mosquitoes. <laughs> so, so, so the the fallout of this really happens because I think you're right that sparrows are the only one that you can conceivably do anything about because <laughs> yeah. they are also the least malevolent, like to society um so this is a pretty short article so i'm gonna i'm gonna read some stuff um okay so the four pest campaign was introduced in 1958 by mao zedong uh, as a hygiene campaign aimed to eradicate Mm. the pests responsible for the transmission of pestilence and disease mosquitoes for malaria rodents for the plague pervasive airborne flies and the sparrows specifically the Eurasian Eurasian tree sparrow, which ate grain, seed, and fruit. The government also declared that birds are public animals of capitalism, which I love. (laughs) The original birds are fake. The original. (laughs) Yeah. Um, According to some eyewitnesses, citizens would bang pots and pans so that sparrows would not have the chance to rest on tree branches and would fall dead from the sky. Sparrow nests were also destroyed, eggs were broken, chicks were killed. In addition to these tactics, citizens also resorted to simply shooting the birds from the sky. These mass attacks depleted the sparrow population, pushing it to near extinction. Furthermore, contests were held among enterprises, government agencies, and schools in cleanliness. Non-material rewards were given to those who handed in the largest number of rat tails, dead flies, and mosquitoes, or dead sparrows. Um... Uh, at non-material is, rewards yeah uh, hilarious so this is um a um like a a quote from a like a source it says at dawn one day last week the slaughter of the sparrows in peking began continuing a campaign that has been going on in the countryside for months the objection to the sparrows is that like the rest of chinese inhabitants they are hungry mm. they are accused of pecking away at supplies in warehouses and in paddy fields at an officially estimated rate of four pounds of grain per sparrow per year. So divisions of soldiers deployed through Peking streets, 
their footfalls muffled by rubber-soled sneakers. Students and civil servants in high-collared tunics and school children carrying pots and pans, ladles and spoons quietly took up their stations. The total force, according to Radio Peking, numbered 3 million. Uh, this is maybe my favorite little part of the entire thing. <laughs> Some sparrows found refuge in the extraterritorial premises <laughs> of various diplomatic missions. <laughs> The personnel of the Polish embassy in Beijing Let's go. De- denied the Chinese request of entering the premises of the <gasps> embassy to scare away the sparrows who were hiding there. And as a result, the embassy was surrounded by people with drums. <gasps> After two days of constant drumming, the Poles had to use shovels to clear the embassy of dead sparrows. Oh, my God. So, okay. All right. Let's talk about some stuff. First off, yeah. I can't help but be incredibly impressed, especially like in how it, re- it is related to communism with mm. the like will of the people collectively mm-hmm. to accomplish a task and mm. what a society is like when they work together to accomplish something. <laughs> like literally as you're saying these like beautiful words, I'm just picturing a ring of people going bong 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 bong. <laughs> bing 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 bing. Die. <laughs> However, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like most of the stuff that I've read about Maoism, I can't yeah. help but think that maybe Chairman Mao was wrong about some stuff of all yeah. of the of all of the kind of um major marxist figures of the 20th century mm-hmm. who kind of like has their own ism mm-hmm. mao's stuff always felt the most whimsical and kind of right. out there and mm. generally the most harmful like mm. Like, and, you know, like Stalin, I wouldn't even really classify him as having an ism so much Mm. as he was just like this, like, iron-willed totalitarian ruler. Like, it's not that he had, like, specific concepts that were unique to him. Like, Mao really did have, like, stuff that he believed in that was unique. They're just Mm. weird, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that Mao really hit it on the head, though, about was, like, killing landlords. I think that might have been his, like, yeah. coup de grace. It was um, almost redeeming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there... <laughs> on a serious note, though, there is a very interesting sentence here that kind of, like, I think ties back to a lot of what we've been talking about in weird ways. The objection to the sparrows is that, like the rest of China's inhabitants, they are hungry. Mm-hmm. And I think hunger really comes, like the simplicity of human strife comes down to hunger. Where like when you were asking about these societies where where, can we forgive each other? Can we, you know, while we continue to move apart and all that stuff. It's like I kind of think a lot of the social identity issues will will become non-issues when everyone is comfortably full. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Good point. All right. So I would say, in conclusion, 
about the four pests, uh, about the four pests program or the four pests campaign is that I find it hard to, um, ignore my, like how complicit I would personally be if this was happening in the society that I was a part of. Mm. Mm -hmm. Just in the sense that it's like, it would be very easy to get wrapped up in the moment. And, and we've already talked about how like ethics are, um, like completely relative, like that, that we are both moral relativists. Right. And so like, yes, there are probably some things that almost all cultures and peoples would agree are like good or bad. But like, Mm -hmm. if your culture that, you know, like let's take American culture, for example, if it was Mm -hmm. going fine, I mean, I would mm-hmm. say we're probably a little bit under fine at the moment. Yeah. If there was some massive change that broke out of your like boredom and was just fucking exciting, it was like, this is new and this is new and we get to do this now because, you know, like, fuck the old way. Right. And they told me, start banging this pan so that all of the sparrows die. I have a hard time believing that I would like question it because I would just be too excited. Yeah. What? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a tough one because I, I want to think that I wouldn't. Right. I want to think that I wouldn't. Right. But, but I mean, but also, you know how I feel about mosquitoes. But also how good would it do? What good would it do if you wouldn't? You know what I mean? It's like right. at a certain point, it's like, get your licks in, you know. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. <laughs> But, Verge, I do have one more, like, small... Please. Um, subject Bring us back on... to uh, calmer waters before we end this, you know? Yeah, on the subject of nuisance wildlife management... Um, yes. I do want to bring attention to a specifically Wikipedian um, topic... Okay. ...that deals with the... Um, the geographic area in the world that actually is the largest area in the world to be completely rat free by their own design. Um, so um, the province of Alberta has had a 70 year campaign to completely eliminate rats from their geography, uh, which is. And like, uh, and it's successful. And it's been successful. I mean, like, amazing. I, I am I am working off of a a blog, a Canadian <laughs> blog called CrackMax.ca, uh, which is Calgary food, drinks, events, and lifestyle since two thousand nine. Oh, um, right. but it's got to be right. So, so basically, they wrote an article, um, and it says rats in Alberta. Where are they? Uh, and Again, this is Calgary. It says, as we all know, rats are illegal in Alberta. You can't have them as pets, raise them as pet food, or even employ them in the government. I don't really understand that line. Um, If you're caught with a rat, you can face a fine of up to $5,000 or jail time. Uh, It's serious business, and it has been this way since 1950. This program has been so successful, the times that people do see rats, they're coming in on trucks or trains 
from neighboring provinces or something like that. I've lived in Alberta for over 30 years and have never seen one myself. Everyone says Alberta is rat-free, but is it really? Word of mouth says yes. Everything that shows up on Google says yes. The extremely long and detailed history of rats says yes. <laughs> on Wikipedia? It depends on who you ask. <laughs> so then it goes into sh- like saying like like all of the stuff we know about Wikipedia that all animals have a Wikipedia page, obviously. Um, of course. And it talks about you know like their history, diet, family, species, whatever. And then it has a map. And it then goes on to explain that there has been a 13-year-long edit war on Wikipedia <laughs> where fucking obnoxious Albertans have taken <laughs> the province of Alberta out of the red area <laughs> that that shows the like um, habitat or the, you know, like the... Um, like the distribution of rats right. around the world, and and mind you, this <laughs> this map is the entire world. Like, <laughs> it's rats. It's rats. It is red across the entire world, except for like the northernmost part of Russia and Canada and Greenland, um, and Svalbard, <laughs> notably. Notably, Svalbard nice. has no rats. Oh, Longyearbyen has so much going for it, man. It really does. Um, but it like. You know, ignores the Sahara Desert, ignores right. the Himalayas, the Andes Mountains. Mm-hmm. Like, there are no rats in a lot of places. But Alberta has to make sure that it is rat-free the and that the world need knows to know. it. The people need the to know that Alberta has no rats. Know. They won. I guess Who? the thing that I'm thinking about is, like... Is it worth it? You know what I mean? Like, like, yes, they don't have any rats in Alberta, but like, does that really functionally change Alberta I was, at all? <laughs> I was gonna say, is it worth it? Like, as if like they kill the last rat and then they go, <laughs> oh, we've done it, but at what cost? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, you know, clearly it does. Or maybe Alberta is just... In, in 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 such an such a american broad way to describe it maybe alberta is just classically like so has so little going for it that this is big it i think that that would track who is the guy who's got such a big stick up his ass and you know it's a guy you know it's a guy who's got such a big stick up his ass that he won't let the albertas have this albertans have this <sighs> Do you stand on that side of like, there's no way they've been fully eradicated, can't take Alberta off? No, I I would say that I think I, um, I I would say the three months or so or four months or whatever that we've Mm -hmm. been doing this Mm -hmm. has led me to the talk page for Mm -hmm. Wikipedia articles more than I've been there in my entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, people who edit Wikipedia are the most insufferable people <laughs> that I've ever never met, but mm-hmm. like experienced online anonymously in my entire life. Uh, That's it is, hilarious. It yeah. is just, it is the most insane. Like, I really yeah. do advocate to all of our listeners 
the next time you're on Wikipedia and you find an article interesting, go to the very top and <laughs> click on talk. And you will find that that article has been ruined for you. But also <laughs> it's like you're, I don't know, you're, you're, you're finding something new about the depths of like human mm. arrogance. <laughs> yeah it's wild man i mean it's like it's like a microcosm of all like the all the bureaucratic stupid political discussions yeah and there's something beautiful about it in that way i think Mm -hmm. i mean i i do think that wikipedia is a net good just like oftentimes like as much as it feels weird to say it like bureaucracy is like Mm -hmm. a net good like it actually does like do the thing that it's supposed to do but mm-hmm. when you talk when you start to like unpack like the little weird power trips of specific bureaucrats mm-hmm. you're like oh this is yeah. this is why we can never reach like like we won't reach true perfect until the machines do all the work and we are mm-hmm. there like we are both there their servants and their customers you know what i mean mm-hmm. like that's like when humanity's really going to hit a stride when the machines <laughs> like are the workers and the owning class but humans just like get to do what they're good at which is like just like be lazy and we just want to be house other. we want to be house pets but not yeah. to anyone that we can't control <laughs> yes that is a good point we wow, do want to be yeah. house pets I can't wait for that, honestly. I hope that I get reincarnated during that period of humanity. That'd be tight. It would be cool. Um, that's, yeah. It's so funny. Like, I, I always think of, like, to be a true a true Wikipedia editor, you have to be, like, monkish about it. Yeah. It's got to be, like, pure. So I can understand this probably one person's, like, absolute... Um, inability to back down from this map issue of taking Alberta out. <laughs> yep. But I'm also a human being that's just like, dude, just give it to them. It I agree. will not matter. If anything, it will provide more incentive for people to learn more about it. Yeah, agreed. One hundred percent. I think it I think it's I think it's truly dumb. Like I think mm-hmm. it's like a truly uh, it it doesn't it 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 escapes the spirit of wikipedia in yeah. some way you know hey even jesus drank wine bro loosen up by loosen <laughs> up yep yeah. um well hey well that was that was great yeah that was all wonderful right. all right folks um if you thank you for listening first of all and thank if you. you want to um if you want to interact more with us we are on social media, both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, our show has a little little page. We also have a Gmail account, Hegelian Friendship Simulator at gmail.com. Please reach out uh, if you want to, you know, you know, just vibe, hang out with us, um, talk to us about Wikipedia articles, mm-hmm. the whole shebang. Uh, we both are probably going to start the Adam Curtis documentary tonight. So yep. there's that. I mean, if you want to likely if you want to uh if you want to talk about that with us maybe we'll you know start a little start a little group thing going so so let us know
Uh, but but we love you all. We appreciate we appreciate you listening. We'll catch you next week. All right. Thank you. Love you. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>